According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. Some of us are continuing where we were a week ago, and I'm continuing where I was two weeks ago. Last week I was fighting a migraine. First of all, I apologize. Last week I was fighting a migraine and I took two Excedrin between the first hour and the second hour and I sat back in the library with the lights off uh, hoping to stay in front of it. And um, when 11 o'clock came I felt like I could and uh, about five minutes into the class I realized I was in trouble. The fact that my eyes couldn't focus on the text was a big clue. Uh, part of the uh, ocular migraine effects are that it comes in from the side and I get little tingles. And so I gave up on reading the Bible and just try to speak off my memory off the top of my head. And I know I had uh, three or four different places where I misspoke. There is no such thing as a one-foot yardstick. I, I know that. It is a three-foot yardstick. And Harrison Ford was Indiana Jones not Han Solo. He was both Indiana Jones and Han Solo, but it was not Han Solo who found the Ark of the Covenant. In any event, it's, uh, you're very uh, gracious and uh, we can laugh now, um, but it is, uh, it is uh, something that I take seriously as um, to stand before the people of God and proclaim, thus saith the Lord, is, uh, is, a, is a fearsome fearsome experience and to approach. I would never dream of standing up here uh, drunk, uh, intoxicated, or, or out of my faculties. Uh, and so to experience the migraine like that, I should have had the wisdom to step aside. Robert told me he even offered to step in, and I have no memory of that. So uh, I should have taken advantage of that. But be that as it may, today is, uh, is a better day, and uh, there is no migraine at the moment. And so my eyes can fix on the words, and we are in Hebrews chapter 9, so appreciate that. Um, one final thing, just keep it in prayer as we're going to be discussing with the deacons today, the deacons meeting, but I believe um, we're going to take, we're going to lower some of my workload a bit, and uh, we're going to suspend Sunday night for at least uh, three months, at least January, February, March. And then we'll reevaluate for April and following to see what happens there, so uh, if you come back tonight, the uh, doors will be locked, the lights will be off, and uh, you'll remember, oh yeah, the pastor said we're, we're not coming back tonight. So that's the announcement on that. All right, Hebrews 9. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, your grace and truth, rejoicing in your Son, Father, who is our provision of grace and truth. And in his name, we stand before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we call upon you this morning to open the eyes of our understanding, to help us to see the deep, deep doctrines that are contained in our Melchizedek priesthood, in our access before you, in the work that our Savior accomplished on the cross and what he accomplished in the heavenly places. We get to tour the heavenly temple in this chapter, Father, and it's, it's a marvelous thing to study. So 
bless our time together and encourage us, Father, as we, as we see these things. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, basically in verses 1 through 5, the author is very quickly trying to get his audience through the tabernacle background so that he can move on. And he moves on in verse 6, which we're going to do today as well, when these things have been so prepared. But in looking at these issues here with respect to the first tabernacle, uh, it says, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And we recognize here that regulations are not government bureaucracy regulations that we think of them today. It's not the IRS and all their rules or, or other government agencies with all these unending regulations. That it, they are dikaiomata, that they are standards of righteousness is what they are. If you think of your spiritual gift as a grace thing, this is a righteous thing. These are righteous things by which we can stand in the holiness of God. And really the reason why priesthoods have regulations as they do is because a holy God is being approached by sinners. And how can sinners approach the holy God? How can sinners enter into the holy place and still call it a holy place? And so there are regulations. And that was true in the first covenant. That's true in the new covenant. That's true in our priesthood as well. We have regulations of divine worship. It goes on to really give a off the top of his head rundown. There was a tabernacle prepared, the first one or the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And then we understand the compartments of that. And I put a picture of that up on the screen last week. And then behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And the author's usage here is quite unique. And some would, would dispute it and actually say he's wrong in some of these things, because he's referring to the two compartments as if they're separate tabernacles. And, uh, and, and the Old Testament never refers to it that way, but this is how he's referring to it here. And so we're more relaxed about it. Uh, likewise, behind the second veil, some people object to that because the first is never really called a veil. It's called a curtain or a gate or a door. There's different labels for it. Uh, likewise, the gate at the outside of the, the courtyard itself is never really called a veil, except when it is. And so we have uh, different usages that really his audience would have no problem understanding what he's talking about. And we should have no problem understanding what he's talking about. He's not using precise language in this chapter. And so behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And so we understand this, the holy place, the most holy place, with respect to the two compartments of the, of the tent. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the uh, of the covenant strictly speaking the altar is outside that veil and in the holy place not in the most holy place but it is associated with the most holy place it is right adjacent to that veil and the high priest can't go through that veil until he's made the appropriate sacrifice at that golden altar in many respects that golden altar is the closest that any of the non-high priest priests could get to the holiness of God is at that altar. So it's associated with the most holy place, even though technically speaking, it's, it's not located inside that second compartment. But since we're not speaking technically in this chapter, we're speaking generally in this chapter, we're relaxed about it and we're not um, 
We're not thrown uh, into despair. All right. Verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The role of cherubim in protecting uh, the throne, the role of cherubim in guarding the way of holiness, the role of cherubim in Old Testament and New Testament alike is quite interesting. And as we were running out of time, we were looking at this, I did not turn with you to Ezekiel. I hope you do take the time to turn to Ezekiel uh, because this was the role that Satan had before he fell, that he was a guardian cherub, that he was one who overshadowed, one who overguarded, as it is stated. I'll just very rapidly grab it here and then uh, we can proceed. But Ezekiel 28... Get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Here we go. Ezekiel. Promise. No migraines today. Ezekiel 28. Because so much of this priesthood, of Aaron's priesthood, of our priesthood, of the coming millennial priesthood, so much of this directly addresses Satan and his fall. And it addresses really the entire plan of God as a resolution to the angelic conflict. And so there are big issues at work that I think, frankly, most believers never pay attention to when it comes right down to it. But Satan, before he fell, was a high priest. And we want to be clear on that. And so when we read this description of Satan in Ezekiel 28, uh, he's introduced in verse 12, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is his description before he became the adversary, before he fell and became the, uh, the great enemy that he is today. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And so God is addressing, through the prophet Ezekiel, he's addressing Satan and, and thinking back to the time before Satan fell and what it was he, he had before he became a sinner. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And if you want to read some depressing things, I don't recommend it, but read some of the real depressing commentaries that try to, try to prove that this is not Satan, that this is a human being, that this is a king. Well, when did this king, Ethbaal III, king of Tyre, when was he ever in Eden, the garden of God? The only two human beings that were ever there were Adam and Eve. And when they ate the fruit, they were kicked out of there. And what was it that was posted to keep them from coming back inside? It was a cherub. A cherub was posted there with a flaming sword to keep them from returning uh, to the tree of life, to keep them from returning to the garden of Eden. And so no human being other than Adam and Eve were ever in Eden, the garden of God. And uh, they're obviously not being written to. They died you know, millennia before Ezekiel ever wrote this book. But Satan was there. And so in reflection back to where Satan was, this is uh, described. Every precious stone was recovering. And here's a description that's not like any fish or animal or bird. These aren't feathers. This isn't fur. These aren't scales. These are gems and jewels, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli. Think about how, you know, if this was an animal, uh, how quickly would it be hunted to extinction given the, uh, the uh, wealth contained in his, in his pelt. Uh, but this is how the dragon was first fashioned before his fall. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you 
on the day that you were created, they were prepared. Also, you can find the parallels of this. These stones are identical to the high priestly uh, ephod when Aaron was dressed out in a high priestly ephod. And I believe Leviathan actually is a title for the Levi Tanin, the Levi dragon. Leviathan is Levi uh, Tanin, uh, or you put it together as Leviathan. You have the, uh, the Levitical dragon, if you will. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And this is what we deal with when we talk about overshadowing. The cherubim of glory overshadowed the ark, even as Satan overshadowed God's throne. You were the anointed, the Messiah cherub who covers. The only cherub that's ever called the the Mashiach, the Mashiach cherub, is right here. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. That is backwards from our human experience. There is no human, only Adam and Eve were the only sinless, blameless humans that ever became sinners and fell from a previous state of perfection. They were innocent in their creation, Adam and Eve were. And then they became sinners. We know that story. And from that moment on, their children were born sinners. You and I were born sinners. All right? And uh, this is, we understand this is how it happens. No one can become blameless until righteousness is imputed to you. So when we see these words, it's backwards from what we might expect for the human experience, but it's right on target for what we know about related to Satan and his fall. So in, again, Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were not born, the day you were created, until unrighteousness was found in you. The mental attitude sin that was generated within Satan's own thinking, what caused him to become Satan, what caused him to become the adversary or the enemy. All right. If we have to rewrite verse 15 for our experience, we would say, you were unrighteous, in your ways from the day you were born until the righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to you at the moment of your salvation. Right? That's the order for each one of us. See? Or I pray that it is. That uh, everyone here today has the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And then finally, verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, here's a high priest that's involved in uh, merchandising, who's involved in uh, the trade, like the money changers in the temple. You were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane. Profane is the antithesis of holy. Yeah, instead of being sanctified, instead of being sacred and of uh, holy service to God, profane is not set apart for God's holiness. I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, or overshadowing cherub. And so we have this concept here of overshadowing. And this was his role until he fell. All right. And so uh, we have those issues. But then he says uh, the mercy seat. Of course, Jesus is our mercy seat. We understand that. 
He was displayed publicly as a helosterion, as a mercy seat propitiation in Romans 3 and verse 25. Really all mercy, mercy seat means is the place of propitiation. The place of propitiation where the Father can be satisfied. And uh, Jesus is the ultimate one that satisfies the Father for all eternity. But then he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The author of Hebrews is just running out of time. <laughs> and he's under a, um, really, under a sense of uh, urgency to get into the, into the contrast uh, because he's going to uh, stipulate what's happening still to his, in his lifetime, what's happening still with the ongoing worship in that Jerusalem temple and, uh, and what's coming up. And what did Jesus do when he died on the cross? What did he do when he rose from the dead? And what we're headed for here, you'll notice in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He did not enter into the earthly replica. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Everything you study when you do an Old Testament tabernacle study, you're studying a replica. Jesus did not enter the replica. Remember he said, it is finished and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Did he go in there? He did not go in there. There was no need to go in there. He breathed his last. He delivered up his spirit. He was taken off the cross and he was buried. He never went into the earthly replica, holy of holies, even after he rent the veil in two. He had no reason to go in there. There was nothing to do in there. Saying, Tearing that veil in two was designed to show the empty room for what it was. They never had an Ark of the Covenant in that room. We'll talk about some of those things as well. So what did he do? He went to heaven. He went to heaven. He he went to the reality, not the replica. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Once and for all. What we're going to see this morning is the high priest, he has to do his, his deal year after year after year. Every year, here we go again. Every year it's Day of Atonement. Here we go again. Jesus, once, once and for all, he enters having obtained eternal redemption. So that's where the author's headed to. The author is headed to heaven. He's going to give a full, I mean, the book of this chapter is a heavenly scene um, related to this. So in verse 5, he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, But when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. And so we have now in verse 6, we have the second reference to preparations followed by worship. And that's what I want to get into here this morning. Completed preparation enables continuous priestly worship. Completed preparation enables continuous priestly worship. And uh, we had the term prepared. It was used in verse 2. There was a tabernacle prepared, the first one. 
And then it gets repeated. The same verb gets repeated in verse 6. But in verse 6, now it's in a perfect passive. Now it's a completed action. When these things have been so prepared. In other words, they've been prepared. They're done. They're ready to go. They, the, the present tense is, I'm sorry, the perfect tense is past completed action with present ongoing results. So having prepared a tabernacle, with that done, now ongoing continuous worship can take place. Ongoing continuous priestly service can take place. Preparation precedes the priestly worship. And if it's done right, then the worship can happen. If it's not done right, the worship can't happen. If the preparations are done incorrectly, if in fact um, maybe strange fire gets all offered or other procedures aren't followed or a human being decides to do his own thing, well, then that's not completed preparations and that means there's no qualified worship. There's no continuous priestly worship that can legitimately take place. All right? And I can't stress this enough um, because the completed preparation enables what follows. It's a prerequisite that precedes what follows. And if you think about it too with reference to our service, is there ever a place whereby you can do kind of a partial preparation and then just wing it later on. <laughs> you know, a partial preparation and then you start your priestly worship and you kind of, you know, you can go back and do some remedial preparation after the fact. No. It doesn't allow you to post-date a check. It doesn't allow you to go back retroactively and kind of make up for some shortcomings on the preparation. The preparation must be complete in order for then the worship, the, to uh, the continuous priestly worship to begin. All right. By the way, this is true for our worship as well. When you take a, a look across to chapter 10, you'll notice our preparation is our salvation. Our preparation is being made righteous and being made a Melchizedek priest in the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, course cleansing we do with confession but in hebrews 10 19 therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus why aren't you doing it (laughs) okay we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh we don't have a veil anymore that the veil is done We enter through Him. His flesh is our veil, and we're there. We have confidence to enter by a new and living way. Our priesthood is not like their priesthood. Not where, you know, the priests stop at the the holy place and only the high priest goes into the holy of holies. No, no. We're all in Christ. We all enter within the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And you'll notice the preparation's already been done with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. In fact, on a conscience basis, the cleansing we have by salvation, by faith in Christ is greater than anything Mosaic law could ever do. We'll see that coming up here in chapter 9. And so let us draw near. 
Look at all these lettuces. Okay? Yeah, you can have fun with lettuce. Lettuce, lettuce, lettuce. So um, let us draw near. Let us uh, hold fast. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Because we're all there. We're all within the veil. We're all in Christ. We have a priesthood in Christ that is uh, the blessings of what we have here. So completed preparation enables continuous priestly worship. This concept is illustrated by the continuous fire on the altar. In Leviticus 6, verses 12 and 13, we recognize that the fire was never supposed to go out. The fire was never supposed to go out. I think too many believers today let the fire go out. And they, uh, because they only occasionally uh, engage in their priestly function. And it's been so long since the last time they engaged in their priestly function, they can't remember the last time they entered within the veil and uh, had confidence uh, before the throne of grace. Leviticus 6, verses 12 and 13. You know, you think about perishable skills. You think about uh, getting rusty and out of practice, trying to fire up your priesthood again after it's been ages since the last time you even thought about it, is uh, that's a problem. All right, verse 12, Leviticus 6, 12, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. Remember, we're told to pray without ceasing. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. It is not to go out. And so there's a pattern, there's a picture for us, an illustration of the concept whereby we engage in our priesthood constantly, that we are eternally constantly standing before the Father in our priestly capacity. Access was continual day after day, but limited to the holy place and separated by the veil. Access was continual day after day, but limited to the holy place and separated by the veil. And uh, it's not hard to spot this in many verses. Uh, it seems like the bulk of the Old Testament is just one threat after another of, you know, lest you die, <laughs> right? Do this, lest you die. Don't do that, lest you die. And uh, how, many, how many death threats are there in the Old Testament? Um, that, that'd be fun. Try to count all those. But the, uh, the idea of not entering within the veil, and even the one guy who was allowed to do it one day a year, he had to be very careful about how he did it uh, because if he didn't follow the right procedures, he too would be struck down. Exodus 26 and verse 33 gives us a good death threat here with this and the, uh, the worship outside the, uh, the veil. Verse 31 says, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. And the men that were gifted, spirit-empowered to craft these, uh, we couldn't make them today if we wanted to, not like they did. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. 
you shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. So it's a partition. And the closest they could get was to that golden altar with the incense right in front of that partition so that the, the, the aroma could go up, the smell could go through, that uh, God would smell their sacrifice even if they couldn't carry it in there and smear it on the, on the mercy seat themselves. At least they had, they had that incense altar as close to that veil as they could get it so that that, that smell would go through. But think about that as the, as the barrier. Think about that as what was limiting their access. Something I really wanted to stress last week when uh, I was putting all these pictures up here. If I can find it again, we can just throw it up here this morning. The um, Here it is. The idea of this is, and of course this is unique to Israel, the Jewish people are the only people that had a house, a place of God's presence. And yet, while it was a privilege, while it was a blessing for them that they had access, how much did they really have? When one guy, one day a year, could actually stand before the Shekinah glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ. All right. Otherwise, it's uh, progressive levels of keep out. Okay. So if you're not Jewish, uh, where do you belong? You're not even getting into that entrance. You're not even going in. All right. If you're Jewish, you're going in. Okay. And you can get as far as that brazen altar because you're going to bring your animal there and you're going to kill it. And once you kill it, you put your hand on it to identify with it that, that you're the sinner and this animal's not a sinner, but this animal's taking your place. You put your hand on his head and you slit his throat, all right, and you kill that animal. Then you're done. That's as close as you get if you're just some Jewish, you know, schmuck from, you know, the tribe of Zebulun or Issachar or whatever. If, if you're not a priest, if you're not a Levite, that's as close as you're getting to the Shekinah glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Because the priests take it over from there. The Levites take it over from there. They're going to handle the rest of the procedures related to the entrails and the blood and the, the fatty portions and the, the, uh, everything that happens after that. And then the laver. Uh, that, uh, the Levites aren't going to get past that because it's only the priests who are going to even make use of the laver to cleanse themselves to go into the temple, uh, to go into the, uh, the, the tent itself. And then through that first veil, or second if you count the gate, but into the holy place. Who's going in there? Not even the Levites are going in there. Only the priests are going in there. See? By the way, the male priests. If you're a daughter of Aaron, uh, you're just a daughter of Aaron. You're a Levitical daughter of Aaron. And uh, you can marry a priest and you can make, hopefully, priestly babies. uh, But you're not going into the holy place. You're not going to minister with the with the table of showbread or the or the uh, lamp or the uh, altar of incense. So each step of the way is simply limiting and narrowing the field and narrowing the field and narrowing the field until you get down to one man, one man, the high priest, and for his sake only one day a year, one man, one day a year, enters within that second pale into the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and stands before the holiness of God. All right, so that's what we're talking about, limited access. 
limited access, whereas you and I have tremendous access through the veil that is his flesh. All right? And then tearing that earthly veil while he was on the cross is making a very powerful point. So, uh, again, Exodus 26, 33, uh, the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. Why would anybody in the church age want to put a partition up? Why would anybody in the church age want to have a, a barrier, okay, as the Roman church does, and go sit in a little booth and have a little veil, have a little partition between you and the intercessory priest who himself is between you and God. Why would you want that? There's no place for that in the New Testament. No place for that in the fact that we are all believer priests. We all enter within the veil. We all stand before the Father and the Son. That's our privilege in Christ. Anyway, uh, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the Holy of Holies, set the table outside the veil, the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, you shall put the table on the north side. All right, there's more there. Over to chapter 40, Exodus 40. There's all the instructions as given, and then there's the history of their fulfillment when uh, Moses and the workmen actually did everything as they were told to do. So in Exodus 40, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You and I have no veil, no screen. We are face to face with the Father and the Son. We enter within the veil that is His flesh. And we'll deal with that. Down to verse 21 of the same chapter. So this is what Moses does, and he's obeying everything. Verse 17 says, In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And Moses erected the tabernacle, laid its sockets, set up its boards, inserted its bars, and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, put it into the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the, <coughs> just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so there it is. It's a screen. It's keeping folks out. Um, curious too, in this chapter we have another use of veil in verse 28 and it's talking about the doorway of the tabernacle. And then another use of veil in um, verse 33 where he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. So everybody that was all panicky in Hebrews that he was calling it a second veil uh, needs to chill out and relax. (laughs) There's uh, different ways that these terms are used. All right, but then how does Exodus close? Look at uh, the glory of the Lord appearing here. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember, he could have been the high priest, but he bailed and now Aaron has the the blessing. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. And so each morning they have the reminder. They had a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And when the cloud was lifted up, that was their signal that today's moving day and uh, they need to pack up the tent and, uh, and head out in their national parade. And throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. There was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And this was the case. This is how they operated through the uh, 40 years of their wilderness wanderings. All right, last week I said 20. The 40 years of their wilderness wanderings, uh, they would be following the cloud in, uh, in this way. Access was continual, day by day, but limited to the holy place, separated by the veil. So we're not, you and I, when we function, when we worship, we're not in an outer chamber uh, offering any kind of incense through a veil, hoping that our prayers get heard through the veil, hoping that he can smell the sweet-smelling aroma through the veil. There is no veil. We are in the Holy of Holies. We are in Christ. We are standing in the presence of the Father and the Son. And this becomes our blessing. All right, on to verse 7 then. Hebrews 9, 7. All right, so when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. And this is spoken of in the present tense. Preparation was past, but worship is present. In the time that uh, Hebrews was written, they were still offering sacrifices. But into the second, verse 7 says, into the second, only the high priest once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. All right, now we got more to unpack with respect to this. There is a tremendous impact here that then um, the Holy Spirit's going to signify something in, uh, in verse 8 that's connected to this. But just sticking with verse 7 for the moment. One man, one day a year, and before he does, he's got offerings he has to give first for himself and for these, the uh, sins of the people committed in ignorance. That's, that's huge, okay? That's a big key right there with respect to who's really worshiping and what will God accept. What will God accept for his worship? So um, this is the pattern. This is what the high priest would do. This is what Aaron did. This is what Eliezer did after Aaron died. This is what um, Phineas did after Eliezer died, okay? And then whoever the son of Phineas was after Phineas died, all the way down through the, the lineage of the, of the high priest. And, uh, but before he could go in there, there was a sacrifice necessary for himself because he's a sinner, all right? And this is a huge difference and the reason why this uh, Old Testament priesthood was so limited because even the high priest himself needed a savior. The high priest himself needed a substitute. So he's going to go in there and represent the people but he's doing so as a sinner. Jesus is going to do his sacrifice. He doesn't need a, a, a sacrifice for sin for himself. He's not a sinner. He's without sin. He's able to represent the people and not need a savior himself. Big difference. All right. And then also the sins of the people committed in ignorance, not willful, not defiant, sins of omission and sins of ignorance and sins of unawareness as opposed to the willful defiant sins for which there is no sacrifice. 
All right. Access to the most holy place was limited to one man one day per year. Can you imagine? (laughs) Uh, I don't know about you. Actually, I do. Um, We have access to that throne of grace, right? Continuous. We can find mercy and obtain grace to help in time of need. And, And time of need is more than just one day a year. Okay, Time of need is all day, every day. Time of need is continuous action in our priestly function, in our soldier function, in our ambassadorial function. So it's a good thing that uh, when Jesus entered, He entered once and for all, giving now complete access at any time. Complete access. There's never a, a sign saying, sorry, closed, come back tomorrow. Or there's never a busy signal on the, uh, when we're dialing the, the prayer phone. Uh, he's open for business 24-7. And we are at that throne of grace constantly as we pray without ceasing. Back then, though, access to the most holy place was limited to one man one day per year where he can represent his nation. He can represent the tribes. He would go in there. Remember, he would have the, the uh, names of the tribes on those stones. And they were en- engraved on those two stones, six and six, and uh, he would go in there to represent his nation. Think about that. And think about the corporate nature of Israel as they identified with their, as being Jews, as they identified with uh, being a Jewish person under the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also identifying with their tribe, whatever tribe they were, because that tribe was on the high priest's garments when he went in there before the Lord when he was offering for his own sin and the sin of his nation. And so the covenant nation can stand in priestly relationship to their creator God. But just this one day a year, okay? Whereby they, uh, they receive their national forgiveness and they, they uh, get renewed for a whole new year. The church, by contrast, has unlimited access all day, every day, and thank God for that. Hebrews 4.16 and Hebrews 10.22, that uh, we don't have to wait for the Day of Atonement to send a high priest in there with our tribal name engraved on his stone. Think about that. Not even a personal name, but a tribal name engraved on the stone. Whereas you and I, he knows us by name and we have a new name in Christ. Let's look at Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. I'll just read the first couple of verses. We could read the whole chapter. There's a lot that's in here. Pastor Dan Craw is teaching Leviticus right now at uh, Corpus Christi Bible Church. That's uh, interesting to me. It's uh, not one I would have picked for my first book study as a new pastor in a flock. But hey, as the Lord leads and as he's serving the Lord, there he goes. And uh, my congregation will bear witness to the fact that I have not other than through the Bible series, I have not taught Leviticus on a verse-by-verse basis or as a book study. It's, I can always say it's coming up. It's on my list of top 66 that I want to get to someday. But as far as that goes, I'm actually humbled that the Lord's letting me go through Hebrews at the moment because this is a book I've wanted to teach for 25 years. And uh, the fact the Lord's bringing us here now, to me, is exciting. All right, Leviticus 16 Verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. You know, they, uh, yeah, they, they were a couple of, well, I mean, we're all sinners, but these guys, and bringing the strange fire and the, the rebellion they had, 
they dropped dead. God struck them down. And uh, just because you're the, you know, the pastor's kid, you don't get special treatment. Uh, because your dad's the high priest and you're designed to be the next high priest, now you may not live long enough to be the next high priest because uh, God will strike you down and, uh, and so forth. So Nadab and Abihu died with their strange fire, which is what left Eleazar and Ithamar as the two surviving sons of Aaron. But the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark. One day a year, not any old time he wants to. Because if he does, what does it say? Or he will die. He will die. And anybody except Aaron who attempts this will die, no matter what day it is. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat to stand in that Shekinah glory, that presence of God, and not drop dead is, uh, is a miracle. And the fact that Aaron can do it one day a year is a miracle. And so notice these things that he has to bring just to get in there. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole chapter here for you, but you'll notice uh, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are the holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the uh, congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. In fact, one of those goats is going to die and one of those goats is going to live because it takes two goats to paint the picture of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection how the living Savior takes away our sins. And you'll notice it's for himself and for his household, for his nation. For himself, for his household, for his nation. All right. Anyway, there's, there's a whole lot more here. Now Jesus, he didn't have to offer anything for himself. He was there without sin. He was there with no need for anyone else to be his intercessor. He was the one and only. And so... Uh, he was able to fulfill what Aaron was just doing as a shadow, what Aaron was doing in typology. Limited to one man, one day a year. The church, by contrast, has unlimited access all day, every day. Of course, we love Hebrews 4, 6 with boldness. I'm sorry, 16, Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And it doesn't say it has to be on a particular day in October right? September, October, whenever the, the Jewish calendar comes around. So that we may fi- receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. Hebrews 10, 22, we saw a little bit ago. We draw near with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence. The preparation's been made. He, he qualifies us to stand there in his presence. What a miracle. The Aaronic high priest, that's A-A-R-O-N-I-C, or Levitical. The Aaronic high priest was also a sinner in need of a sacrifice for himself. Verse 6 and verse 11. For himself, for his people, and for, also notice, for the holy place itself. See, I knew I wanted to stay in Leviticus 16. There's more coming up. The Aaronic high priest was also a sinner in need of a sacrifice for himself. So he's painting a picture. He's portraying the coming Messiah. 
but he can't complete it and he can't accomplish it in its in its totality because he too is a sinner. So all he can do is is portray the doctrine in the in the ritual. But limited by the fact that he too is a sinner in need of a sacrifice for himself, for his people, and for the holy place. It's interesting when you look at Leviticus 16.6 Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering which is for himself that he may make atonement for himself and for his household spiritual leadership including his wife, his children, his household and then um, down to verse 11 Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself for his household he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Get down to verse uh, 16. Let's see here. Verse 15 says, um, He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil. So once he's done his own sins, now he can do the people's sins and uh, bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place. Now wait a minute, what's that about? In verse 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. So not only do the people have to be sanctified, the, the holy place itself gets defiled when sinners are going into the holy place. <coughs> and all of this, of course, is a picture of the heavenly temple, which Satan defiled in his fall. And what Jesus is going to have to go and cleanse that we'll see here in, later on in Hebrews chapter 9. But atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Everywhere they move the temple, everywhere they move the tabernacle, they move to a new spot. And as soon as they get to a new spot and set it up, what's the problem? They're sinners going back into there again. <laughs> oh, how do sinners stand before the holiness of God? Verse 17, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for the assembly of Israel. And then he's able to go in and sprinkle the blood and do what he's doing. Of course, this was true for the Aaronic high priest. It's not true for Jesus. Jesus Christ had no such need. We're told that he had no such need in Hebrews 7.27. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Doesn't need it. He doesn't have his own sins. We have the fitting, the unique, the sinless High priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. We have a high priest unlike Aaron or any of those that followed Aaron. Psalm 
sin committed in ignorance. For the sins committed in ignorance. Sins committed in ignorance. And the stress on that in this verse, I think, is really the biggest deal anywhere in this verse. Um, Because you have offerings for those. If you take the time to read, say, the first seven chapters of Leviticus, and in verse chapter 1 you have the burnt offering, and in chapter 2 you have the peace offering, in chapter 3 you have the meal offering, in chapter 4 you have the sin offering, in chapter 5 you have the trespass offering. And then in 6 and 7 you've got instructions for giving all of those offerings. So you look at all the Levitical code for sacrifices, and you understand that nowhere in those sacrifices was willful defiant sin provided for. If you, uh, like David and his adultery with Bathsheba, knowing full well what he was doing, living in open defiance of the, of the Torah, of the law, there's no sacrifice for that. There's no sin offering for that. There's no trespass offering for that. So um, the uh, significance here, and I think this too, we in the New Testament have a very interesting benefit in the sense that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so what are those? Are those the sins we're aware of? The sins we can name? The sins we remember? uh, The sins we're cognizant of? What about our sins we are unaware of? What about our sins committed in ignorance? The sins we didn't even know were sins? You know, we, we learn things in Bible class and we think, wow, I've been doing that for 20 years now. I didn't realize I've got to quit doing that. <laughs> I'm going to kind of change my Christian walk here because I'm getting convicted here. This is kind of new territory for me. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that all those years leading up to this day of conviction that I was committing those things in ignorance? Yeah. And God in His grace is letting us grow and letting us learn these doctrines and letting us learn. Now that we know, now that we're convicted, now we're accountable. Now they become a sin of omission if we don't do what we know we should be doing because we've had the doctrine, we've had the teaching, and now we're aware. And so uh, it's curious to me that I think today in the church age with the doctrine we have, with the canon we have, Hebrew and Greek scriptures we have available to us, I think pretty much, I mean really, um, most of our sins, uh, we know what we're doing. (laughs) All right? You know, we know what we're doing. And we, and we know, and we get convicted, and so we confess it. And when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glory. What a provision. But in the Old Testament, the reference oftentimes was on the, uh, the ignorance, the unintentional, the accidental sin, if you will. And you have these, uh, just a handful of verses here. Uh, look at Leviticus 4. Look at Leviticus 4. I should have brought two Bibles up here and left one permanently in Leviticus and uh, left the other one permanently in Hebrews. Just for today. Leviticus 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, If a person sins unintentionally, notice, in any of the things which the Lord has commanded them not to be done and commits any of them, Hmm, okay. So that's a, that's a pretty important if, I would say. Especially if all the procedures that follow for the sin offering are centered in that. 
And I keep reading and I keep reading and I keep reading and I'm waiting for my sin offering for uh, my intentional sin when I meant to do it. And it's not in this chapter. Verse 3, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people. Um, goes on down. There's uh, Down to verse 22, when a leader sins, unintentionally does any one of the things which the Lord his God had commanded not to be done. Now, now we're involving tribes and clans and families in the, in, the, in the leadership capacity. There's consequences there. But again, the expression is unintentionally. He becomes guilty. And uh, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. So he's got a sin offering, but it's only when he was unintentional in that sin. Down to verse 27, if one of the common people sins unintentionally, and that's just, uh, you know, the laity, the population. So you have the leaders, now you have the common people. Sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord had commanded not to be done and becomes guilty. If his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. All right. For the leader, it was a male without defect. For the uh, common people, it's a female without defect. But notice again, the statement is unintentional. And then after the fact, he gets the doctrine, he gets the teaching. It's brought to his attention. That's wrong. I can't be doing that. So now he's got to bring his offering. That's the procedure. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation and silver. And you'll notice, um, but again, it's unintentional. Verse eight, uh, 16, you shall make restitution for that uh, against the holy thing and shall add to it a fifth part of it. Okay, so there's restitution on top. Then the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and will be forgiven him. Verse 17 again says unintentional. If a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he shall be guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram and so there's the, uh, the issue there for the guilt offering, for the guilt offering. Willful, defiant sins have no sacrifices or liturgical forgiveness. Willful, defiant sins have no sacrifices or liturgical forgiveness. There just isn't any. Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31. This is so spelled out. The person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the sin sacrifice? Where's the liturgical provision? There is no liturgical provision. The only provision for such willful defiant sins is the totality forgiveness provided via the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. That's when as a nation they get their reboot. 
as a nation, they get the totality forgiveness. Now this is going to be an application for us when we get into Hebrews chapter 10. What happens when you and I sin willfully, defiantly, when we trample underfoot the the, uh, cross of Jesus Christ? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is no sacrifice. And even worse, Israel at least had a day of atonement coming up in the fall. We don't. All right? We have the once and for all redemption of Jesus Christ. And so the seriousness of it, the accountability that we have, where we are cut off from our people, that is, we have our access revoked. We'll talk about this, but it doesn't mean losing salvation, all right? But what it does mean is is forsaking our priestly function, forsaking our intimacy within the veil, forsaking our our uh, the, the the confession that we're supposed to hold fast to our confession. See, so we'll deal with that as well coming up. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. What is the Holy Spirit signifying? Hebrews 9.8 The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. The way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. And I think it becomes a, a, an obstacle, becomes a barrier to our comprehension for the Jewish people, but even today. I think there are limitations. I think there are circumstances today whereby believers have things thrown in their way where they can't see the holy place for what it is. So next week we'll come back to this and we'll address this. Because we don't want to have an obstacle. We don't want to have a stumbling block. We don't want to have a barrier a screen, a veil. We don't have anything between us and the holiness of God. He's giving us His holiness. He's giving us His righteousness. We have full access before the Father in Christ. We don't want to have um, uh, an undisclosed access as the Jews had, as I think legalism provides, as other issues provide for believers today. As We'll have to discuss what those obstacles are. And then we'll recognize that all of this typology needs to be contrasted with reality. Verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Don't confuse symbolism with reality. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The Levitical priesthood was symbolism, animal ritual, not reality. The doctrine represented is the reality. And you and I function in the reality. Don't confuse the shadows or the types with the fulfillment or with the substance or with the antitypes or with the, uh, the, the, uh, the reality that we operate in. So next week we'll come back and we'll deal with that. Heavenly Father, I do thank you. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessing that we have in Christ the reality that we have in Christ, the access that we have in Christ, all of the rituals, all of the shadows, everything that Israel as a nation was given to portray your holiness and to portray redemption, to anticipate the coming of Christ. All of these things now with hindsight, we have the blessings to be able to look back to see the work of our Savior on the cross, to identify with his completed work, to, uh, to testify that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. 
Father, I thank you that by faith in Christ, we are uh, in Christ and we are baptized into union with him, that the righteousness of God is imputed to our account, that we enter within the veil that is his flesh. I pray, Father, that as we learn these doctrines, we will live them out constantly, that we will be functioning in our priestly service, that we will not let the fire go out on our altar, that, Father, in all things we stand before you with great confidence. I pray that each one of us becomes more challenged, not only as individual believer priests, but collectively as a priesthood, that uh, we identify with our place as the body of Christ here in the, the lampstand of Austin Bible Church, that we function in our priestly capacity here corporately, not just praying at home, but praying with the body of Christ here in church and the blessings we have to worship and the blessings we have to praise and all that we do, Father, in the variety of gifts and offerings that we bring forth. So, Father, Hebrews is the book of our priesthood, and I thank you for teaching us these, uh, these powerful truths. I pray that we uh, be, are mindful of the warnings, mindful of the severity. Our accountability is far greater than anything Aaron or his sons were ever placed under. And uh, with that accountability, Father, comes a tremendous fear of the Lord that we want to uh, foster, we want to nurture for each one of us day by day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.